BGSM podcast. My name's Stefan Griffin. I'm a junior doctor working in London with an interest in sport and exercise medicine, and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. Today I'm joined by two giants of the rugby medicine world. Dr. Martin Raftery is Chief Medical Officer of World Rugby, and Dr. Ross Tucker, Research Scientist at World Rugby. In this first podcast, we are going to discuss all things concussion. So, Martin, could you tell us a little about the concussion journey that rugby has been through and some of the interventions that have been trialled and implemented to try and deal with the issue? I guess our, our journey started back in 2011 um, uh, when we had a meeting and recognised that the management of concussion uh, by, within rugby uh, wasn't up to speed. Uh, we, we were lucky enough to have uh, research available which is, had been undertaken by a number of different uh, competitions, uh, which showed that 56% of players who sustained a concussion were returning to play at that time. So it was recognised that the, the immediate care of concussion was, wasn't up to scratch, and we needed to make some changes. And the first change we made was to, well, the first step in, in making change was actually to get uh, approval for temporary substitution for head injuries, for assessment of head injuries off the field of play. Now, rugby's a, a replacement sport. It's not a substitute sport. So we, we had to apply to the administrators and get that approval to be able to take the player from the field of play to do the assessment and that then allow that player, if they were cleared, to go back on the field. Brilliant. And you've mentioned there that you had to approach the administrators. I know cricket's followed in the same path recently in the, in the, uh, the Ashes this year. There'll be concussion replacements. Um, how, hard, how difficult a process was that and how long did that take? Well, it's quite interesting because people thought it was going to be difficult, but once we put forward the, the rationale behind it, the administrators are very supportive. Um, and really, I think that uh, the decision was made in November 2011, and by January 2012, we'd had approval for, for, a, t- for, te- for a trial for temporary substitution for head injuries. And in terms of the, the evidence supporting that change, you mentioned 56% earlier. How has how that, that figure changed as a result of these changes? Well, what happens was just with the introduction, we, we actually introduced a five-minute uh, off-field assessment. And once again, that was about uh, a negotiations strategy because we needed to get the confidence of the administrators uh, that this wouldn't be abused by the players and the coaches, and it wasn't. Uh, so in the, first, in the first year that we, we did that, we found that the, the number of players with a concussion returning to play dropped down to 12% and has subsequently dropped since that period of time, down to 8 and 7% now. So that's the replacement rule that you guys introduced and really pioneered within world sport. I know one of the other things that you've led on is law changes. And I know, Ross, you were involved in this process and you've published in the BGSM about some of these law changes. Can you tell us some of the rationale behind some of these and, again, the success of these as well? Yes, yeah, so my involvement with the rugby process starts in 2015, in fact, a few months before that, in 2014, Martin contacted me and asked if I'd be willing to come over and do a little bit of work on the rugby side. So I said, absolutely, it'll be, it'll be good. What will we focus on? And he said to me then that we have to do concussion prevention. And so as he's just alluded to, the, I think the focus, it's fair to say, from 2011 up to 2015 was very much on the identification and the management and the return to play. But, but really, the big question is, how can you prevent them from happening? Because one of the consequences of awareness and better diagnosis and identification was that the concussion numbers went up. 
purely because now a player who'd previously been concussed and overlooked was being picked up. So statistically, the game got worse and worse and worse because now we were picking up these cases that before were missed. So prevention then starts to become the number one issue. So in 2015, we embarked on a study, and we're quite lucky in rugby that we've got a combination of really, well, it's not perfect data, it never is, but it's quite a good data set. So we know when these head injuries have happened, and we know what their outcomes are. And we also had video footage of every single one that had happened. So we, we looked at this library, which spanned 2013, 14, and 15. So three years, 1,500-odd matches, and 611 head injuries for which there was video footage. And we analyzed them. We said, well, let's, let's try and understand a little bit more about exactly how these things happen. Let's try and identify what events in the match are more likely to cause a head injury. And then within those events, so now... We're talking within a tackle, within a ruck, within a mall. What specifically about those tackles makes them more dangerous? And so that was the study that was done. And the analysis was obviously an enormous volume. And we had a, we had a video analyst called Ben Hester, who was really the engine of the project. He did all that work. Uh, and by 2016, we had this data set. And we were able to show that the tackle caused 75% of the head injuries. And that within the tackle, 72% were to the tackler. And that was, that was a superficial finding, but a really important one, because it gave us reason to think differently about the problem. Because it's one thing trying to solve an issue when something happens to the other guy. It's, it's quite different when you are responsible for the action that injures yourself. So what we, what we did with that was, because now at this point, the scientist, me, the doctor, Martin, our, our job is not done, but it's, it, we're now leaving our expertise because we can gather the data, we can analyze, we can present it. But the people who have to solve the problem are the experts in the field, and that's the coaches, the players, the officials, the referees. So we sat a group of them down, what we call the multidisciplinary expert group, and we said to them, here's the picture. This is what's dangerous. This is what's safer. You tell us how we change it. And that's where the law change initiatives came from. Because very briefly, we, we identified half a dozen risk factors. But the one that they felt would be the most effective to address, call it the low-hanging fruit, was that we'd found that when the contact is higher, in other words, when the tackler's body position is higher, and he makes contact above the sternum, shoulder, head of the ball carrier. That's when the risk was the highest. And so it was based on that data and their suggestion that we introduced these law changes to try and reduce the risk. And Martin, from the implementation of those laws, I know more recently World Rugby have released the High Tackles Framework. Could you tell us a bit about how this came to be and also then... Um, how that's going to be implemented across the game and what people might see over the next few months. I think it's important to realise that um, there's been two interventions which sometimes get intermingled. Uh, one is a, what we call a sanction framework. So when we had these, as Ross spoke about, the multidisciplinary group who got together back at the end of 2016 and we said to them, how do we actually get to lower the tackle height within the game? You're the experts, you tell us what to do. They said there's probably three ways we can do it uh, with the data that we'd given them. And Ross can talk about the data later on. 
But the first way was to say, let's increase the sanctions, because we think if we increase the sanctions, then that's going to get the tackle height lower. Most sanctions are, are given to protect the ball carrier. But as Ross said, the major person at risk is actually the tackler. So we had to say, okay, what else could we do apart from that? So our first, and they, they recommended to start off, that the first intervention should be about increasing sanctions. The second thing was actually uh, the, the data showed that there was a, a 44 50% increased chance of, of, a, of a concussion in somebody who was upright in the tackle. And that upright tackle was also the high, it was a high risk, but it was also the most frequent risk within the sport. So we thought, they said, okay, we should probably try and lower that, to get that player to lower in, in height. And how do we do that? And so we come up with what we call as a, as a, a, a technique warning system. And the third one was about, you could actually use the law to, to lower the tackle height. Um, and the opinion from that, from that, from that group, that expert group, back in 2016 was that, that would be the most difficult one to actually implement. So we, sent, we spent our time focusing, first of all, on, on the, the sanction framework. We actually got, uh, in 2017, World Rugby responded very quickly and changed the wording of, of the sanctions for accidental and reckless, reckless high tackles. Um, and we saw uh, a, an increase in, in, um, in penalty rates, in, and we also saw an increase in, in uh, yellow cards. And that was, that was very positive. Uh, what we didn't see, though, in the second year was it, it wasn't consistent. So we then brought in what, this, we, what was developed was this sanctioned framework, which actually helped to guide the referees to make more consistent decisions. So that's the sanction, sanction side of it. The technique side of it is about trying to protect the tackler themselves. And that is then looking at trying to get that player to bend at the waist. Bending at the waist an upright tackle is still not illegal, but it's a high risk. So what we're doing is we're trying to pr protect the tacklers in that situation. So it's very important to understand that they were the two uh, interventions that we've, we've, we've focused on. Yeah, so once the zero tolerance was implemented in 2017, we tracked the number of penalties and cards that were given because, as Martin said, the premise was that we were using the law to disincentivize the behavior, like the stick approach. So we needed the sanction to be given more often and when it was given it needed to be more severe so we tracked that and we saw a 64 percent increase in high tackle penalties we saw a 41 percent increase in yellow cards so that's positive but we saw inconsistencies between tournaments and we created a degree of confusion among fans media people who follow the game coaches and players and that undermines your efforts because if you're going to change people's behavior you need the messaging to be consistent. So we needed to fix that particular loophole, and the high tackle framework is intended to achieve that. So it is meant to give people a systematic way to evaluate a tackle so the two people who observe the same tackle will reach the same decision. So it's very much like a decision tree that a doctor would use for diagnosis or that a pilot would use to fly an airplane. And the, the hope is that, that that achieves its result. So that was used for the first time at the Under-20 World Championships recently in Argentina. And it'll be used at the biggest stage of all now in the World Cup. And unfortunately, people will see more penalties. They will see more yellow cards. They will see more red cards. But the early evidence that we've got is that the global concussion numbers since this initiative have started to trend downwards. 
It's early days yet, so I'm not going to sit here as a scientist and commit to that. But we're encouraged by the fact that for the first time, we've seen a reduction in, in the global concussion incidence. And for us, from the welfare perspective, we're saying, would you rather see slightly more cards and fewer concussions, or do you want to see fewer cards and more concussion? For us, the, f- the first is much, much more desirable. So that's what we'll keep pushing. As you just mentioned, the incidence of concussion rose quite sharply a few years ago. Um, can you provide some background to this at all, please? Back in 2012, we, we had concussion rates which had been stable within the sport, around about five concussions per thousand player hours. And over the next few years, as we increased the awareness and recognition of concussion, and we saw that those rates go up, and they went from 5 to, to 12 to 15, and they, they peaked at around about 20. And we believed that that was related purely to an increased awareness. And the reason we can say that was because we also, at the same time, were tracking other traumatic injuries occurring in the sport. And people, some people were saying, oh, the concussion rates are going up because the sport's getting more dangerous. And the answer was that wasn't true. Overall, injury rates were stable. Um, and what we looked at when we looked at other traumatic injuries over that same period, we saw them actually coming down. So the so one was stable and the other two or three, we looked at things like uh, shoulder problems, we looked at knee injuries, we looked at hematomas, etc. And all those injuries, other, other traumatic injuries were coming down, so it had to be related to an increase in awareness. So it was, And that's so we thought that that was a positive rather than a negative. We'd actually been able to see an increase in awareness, so we recognised it. So that was an increase of around about five times. At the same time, what happened though was that the number of people who were returning to play dropped ninefold. So it went down from 56% of people down to around about 7%. So we saw, it, we saw that as being positive, even though they appeared to be negative figures. Yeah, and just, just to add on that, that's, that's what culture change is. And the big part of this process, even on the prevention side, is education and awareness. So what you'll get now is during a high-profile match, and it's inevitable at the World Cup, is there'll be an incident where a player takes a knock and Twitter will explode saying that player should have come off. Five, ten years ago, no one even batted an eyelid. And so in a, in a sense, the sport's almost a victim of its own initiative because it's created a degree of awareness that means now things are far less likely to be missed. So you can interpret that as bad, but for us it's it's extremely positive because it allows the sport to be self-regulating. There'll be a high tackle that's not given a yellow or a red card, and people will complain about that. Twelve months ago, few people would have said a thing. So as we make these changes, we invite criticism, but that's all part of the culture change in the right direction. You've mentioned looking forward there, so to the Rugby World Cup. I know full well that you guys won't exactly be resting on your laurels when it comes to concussion. What other things have you got in the pipeline when it comes to concussion and is that again a more focus on prevention yeah so prevention continues so there's a couple things we have to do one of the most important things is we have to audit our previous initiatives so this is the classic model you introduce a change you have to ask did it work so we will have to repeat the previous study but from 2016 to 2019 and ask how much has player behavior changed have we have we achieved the behavior change that we intended to yes or no And that may give us a different picture. And then in addition to those, the previous research identified obviously the height of the tackle and the upright tackler, which has up to this point been our focus. 
but we also identified speed and acceleration and poor technique. And so there are a couple of law trials that will be done in 2020 that are designed to try and take the speed out of the contact. And so those will be trialed for a season in various competitions. The intention is mostly welfare, but it's also got some player uh, or some, some game aesthetic value, we hope. And if those produce some good results, then they'll come in as well. So then we'll be addressing all those risk factors, and hopefully the collective efforts will start to bring the concussion numbers down. I think also it's important to, to realise, to recognise that it's not the speed of the game that we're trying to have an impact on, but it's the velocity into impact. So we believe if we can actually lower that velocity, yeah. velocity then we'll actually get some change as well. But it's not just one intervention that's going to bring about the change. It's a complex problem, and we have to have a number of different interventions, and that's why we're looking. We've got a couple of things in place, but we're also looking forward to try and see what else we can do. Apart from the interventions, uh, the, the sanction framework and also the, the technique warning, we are going back and looking at the, our large uh, database uh, to see how we can actually improve the tools that we currently are using to help manage concussion. In particular, we're looking at the if we can learn anything from uh, the our pitch side assessment, and we're also just finished an analysis of fourteen thousand baseline scats to see if we can improve on getting better baselines. Because if we can improve the baselines, then it's the changes from those baselines which are important in in, in helping to identify concussed athletes. So that data will actually is will help us to improve the management of those concussions as well. And this, is, this goes to both of you now. So for some of our listeners who might be doctors, physios, sports scientists who want to work within a national governing body framework, what tips would you give to people in different sports who might be in your positions to try and implement change to make, game, to make the game safer? I initially started off by telling them that we needed to approach uh, managing, management of player welfare from an evidence approach. So we used, we needed to use evidence, not emotion, to make decisions. And there was lots of, uh, ev there was lots of evidence before to show that many decisions were made on emotion. People were saying, oh, I know a fellow who, who did this. And play, they were all, a lot of them are ex-players, so they're making decisions what they think is uh, based on their experiences. So it's important, and you often read that in the newspaper, people say either individual athletes or maybe even individual doctors say, my belief is this. And the question is, well, what's that based on? It's a belief of their own belief. That's fair enough, but it's not evidence. And so that's the one thing is to really make sure that you have strong evidence when you make decisions. The second thing is that you need to educate the administrators because if they're going to put faith in you, they, you need to convince them that what you're doing is backed by evidence, but also backed by logic and has a recognition of the sport as well as the player welfare issues. You know, the player welfare is number one priority in, in, in world rugby. Uh, that's what they say, but it's also what they do. Um, at every board meeting, at every rugby committee meeting, at every meeting, player welfare is the number one agenda item. And I think that that's the thing. If you can get your administrative bodies on side, then it makes change easy. You also need to prepare them for the negative, out, negative things are going to happen when, when you have change. People don't like change. And so we're going to get pushback from media or from individual coaches. Coaches are about performance. If they see a change that they think is going to impact on their performance, they're going to be very negative about it. 
So you need to try and predict what are the negative aspects of what you're introducing and then educate your administrators so that they know and are aware that this is, going to, this is about to happen. So I think that having a really close relationship with your administrators and getting their confidence is, is critical uh, to, to uh, getting, bringing about change. But also what's critical is actually having the evidence. And one of the things that I didn't actually touch on was that when we brought in the, the, the pitch site assessment and we got our temporary substitution uh, for head injury back in 2012, one of the decisions that we made which was critical was that we then said that we would allow teams and competitions to use that temporary substitution on the condition that they participated in centralised research. So automatically that gave us a large body of data to start our research. Without having done that in the first place, we wouldn't have the evidence to then to actually then go to our administrators to convince the changes should come about. So you need to take a long-term view. It's not a, it's not a quick fix. You need to have a plan in place, which is both a, a, a strategic plan where you want to get to, and it does take time. And you need, you need to have experts to help you out, experts from the field, from the actual game itself. And you need to, as Ross said before, you need to pass over that information to them to make the decisions. But you also need experts like Ross who come in and can actually crunch the numbers and make a, make a lot of sense out of it. Without, You can't ever do it yourself. You need everybody around you as a team. It's a, it's a team it's a team sport, but it's also a team uh, activity to try and get some resolution of some of these problems. We're not there yet. We've still got a long way to go, but we're, we're making some progress. Thanks for joining us for this special BGSM podcast as part of this e-edition focusing on rugby medicine. Let us know your thoughts via the usual channels and hope you join us again soon. Have a great physically active day. 